You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 29th of February 2024 on Monocle Radio. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Vincent McAvinney. Coming up on today's programme... We are all concerned by the traffic to the canal. Many European firms ask us to do that because their business model is suffering a lot. The EU's Red Sea naval mission is underway. We'll hear about the first skirmishes and Greece's unique role. The end of an era in the US Senate as Mitch McConnell announces he'll step down as Republican minority leader. Then it's Thursday, so Fernando Augusto Pacheco joins us for the weekly Global Countdown. Hello, Vini. For today's Global Countdown, I will explore the exciting world of the Nigerian charts. Plus, we check out Ukrainians' cultural exhibit in Britain's Parliament. All that right here on The Briefing with me, Vincent McIverney. Now, on Friday, the EU's Red Sea naval mission began with ships from Germany, Italy and France under EU command heading to the region besieged by Iran-backed Houthi rebels. The mission is being led from Greece, which only received parliamentary approval to send a ship of its own this week. Christian Buger is a professor at the University of Copenhagen and author of the book Understanding Maritime Security. He joins us now from Mauritius. Christian, thank you for coming on the show. Firstly, how unique is this EU task force in its composition and setup? The pleasure to be in the briefing. The European Union has been trying to play a role as a global maritime security provider for quite some time. In autumn, it published also a new maritime security strategy that outlines exactly such kind of missions. But obviously, It is a different kind of mission in terms of direct violence being involved. So it's quite a challenge for the European Union. And this is reflected in how long it took to get the mission together. It was almost two months that Europe was working on this. Yes, because the US and and UK and several other countries uh, announced their task force back in December of last year. Can you just explain exactly what kind of ships have been sent and how is the command and control being operated? So for this mission, uh, there's been a long debate on how to organise it uh, the best and different European nations, including France, Italy and Greece. They all wanted to lead and in the end... uh, They decided on a model that was used previously for the Irini naval mission in the Mediterranean, and that is to have a headquarter in one uh, of the countries, in this case Greece, but then have different nations to lead on the missions operationally. And this makes a lot of sense because uh, Greece does not have a lot of experience in leading European missions. And... On the other side, Greece uh, is particularly affected by the Red Sea crisis. And we can see this in the drop of port calls, for instance, so less ships go into Greek ports, higher energy prices because the energy would come through the Suez Canal otherwise. And quite obviously, Greece is also a major 
shipping nation. And in that sense, it's not surprising uh, that Greece really made a lot of effort to play a major role in the mission. But Greece had uh, an issue itself, even though it's sort of taking charge of running this. They couldn't send a ship until there was a vote in parliament. Is that right? That's correct. But that's a a conventional procedure in many democracies in Europe. The same was the case uh, for sending the German frigate uh, Hessen. Uh, It also required a parliamentary vote, uh, as all the other uh, missions abroad. So it's quite a conventional uh, procedure. And it's good to see that uh, Greece is now fully committed uh, with a with a vessel of its own. And so what exactly will the mission of this small EU fleet be and how will they operate with and interact with US and UK uh, assets in the area? So the main mission is to protect shipping from uh, drone attacks and missile attacks by the Houthi rebels. Quite a lot of ships have been hit uh, over the past couple of months. Most recently, uh, one of the ships actually has been directly hit uh, to a degree that it's now sinking, and uh, that might cause, most likely will, uh, lead to a major environmental catastrophe with oils, oil being spilled into the uh, Red Sea. So the main mission is to protect shipping from these attacks. This is, however, not fully unproblematic in terms of Europe joining a already crowded scene. And yesterday we had the first incident uh, that points to a lack of coordination. Uh, the German frigate Hessen almost shot down a US drone. So that tells us that Europe is not as well uh, coordinating uh, with the United States as it should be. Uh, But quite obviously, I think it is important that Europe has its own mission there, since the relation to the United States, in particular if it comes to the sea, have been deteriorating over the last decade. In what way have they been deteriorating? Well, it all started under the Trump administration, and uh, back then there was the requirement for a naval response uh, to Iranian attacks on shipping, and uh, there, uh, Europe already sent its own mission, or particular European states put together a mission. So this follows uh, this trajectory in many ways. And of course, there's uncertainty over what the uh, United States intentions will be uh, in the future, in particular looking at uh, next year in terms of what happens after the the elections. Mm. It and- is also... yeah. Carry on. It is also important in terms of uh, the United States and the United Kingdom choosing to uh, to get involved in direct actions on Yemen, and that quite obviously is not what uh, Europe necessarily wants. So the new mission is purely defensive in this sense. Mm. Uh, and just finally, I mean, if this mission is a success, do you think we could see more of these joint naval operations by European nations? Definitely, this is on the agenda. Uh, I do hope we do not need more of these uh, missions, however. So this is why the current mission in the Red Sea is so important, because it needs to be ensured that not other rebel groups, other armed 
actors actually follow the Houthi model elsewhere. This would lead us into a very, very uncertain waters and uh, a lot of future shipping risks. So this needs to be avoided by all costs. Thanks, Christian. That was Christian Buga. Now here's Carlos Rabello with today's other news headlines. Thanks, Vincent. Russian President Vladimir Putin has warned the West that there is a genuine risk of nuclear war should they send their own troops to fight in Ukraine. Speaking in Parliament during his State of the Union address, Putin warned that Moscow had the weapons to strike targets in the West if needed. The United States has pushed for the United Nations Security Council to take action to help end a nearly year-long conflict in Sudan between the army and the paramilitary rapid support forces. The U.S. says the warring parties have committed war crimes. The U.N. says that half of Sudan's population, that's nearly 25 million people, need aid and some 8 million have already fled their homes. And Thailand is set to ban the recreational use of marijuana by the end of the year, but will continue to allow its use for medical purposes. Thailand had become the first country in Southeast Asia to allow medicinal use of marijuana in 2018 and then recreational in 2022. The move is aimed at legislating the sector. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Vincent. Thank you, Carlotta. To Washington now, where U.S. lawmakers have reached a tentative deal to avoid a partial government shutdown ahead of a Friday funding deadline. But this kind of bipartisan cooperation might be in danger, as Republican Mitch McConnell, the longest-serving party leader in the Senate's history, has announced he will step down as minority leader in November. He plans to stay serving in the Senate to the end of his term in 2027, but over recent months he's been plagued by health issues – freezing several times mid-speech, requiring assistance from colleagues. I'm joined now by Monocle's senior news editor, Chris Chermak. Chris, firstly, on the shutdown, how much of a delay have they bought themselves on this? Not really much, to be honest, uh, Vinny. So they've, they've, announced, they've gotten a delay. This was going to be done in various tranches as well. It's extremely complicated in terms of how they've tried to just push this off over the last few weeks and months. So a part, per, certain agencies were going to be defunded on the 8th of March, or on the 1st of March, I should say. That has been pushed to the 8th of March now, so one week, basically. For them to kind of get through, they have been working through all of these appropriations bills and Senate committees and so on. And there is some confidence that they can get the first batch of government funding through next week. And then there will be another separate group of agencies and so on that need to be do, need to be funded. That's been pushed off until the 22nd of March. So they're giving themselves a few more weeks for all of this, basically, to get done. There is some confidence that this can happen. But that said, of course, you never really know based on particularly in the Republican House of Representatives, whether something's going to get through or not. Mm. And whilst government shutdowns have happened several times before, in reality, though, do either side want this to happen in an election year? Yeah, it's a good question. It, it kind of depends on what you mean by side, I would say, particularly when it comes to the Republicans themselves. The Democrats uh, don't really want this to happen in an election, here, election year, particularly because Joe Biden is president and also needs to run the government. Uh, when it comes to the Republicans, it, you, you have different wings right now, right? The traditional Republicans don't necessarily want this to happen. But the sort of fringe Republicans who are supporting Donald Trump, the sort of 5 to 30 or so, particularly on the House side, Congress 
men and women uh, who are involved in this, they are the ones who could potentially put a stop to it. They have talked very much about sticking to their spending priorities, getting a win for the Republicans, and they would be quite angry if Speaker Mike Johnson goes over their heads and tries to have a vote that it needs Democratic support as well. Mm. Now, turning to Mitch McConnell, his departure isn't too much of a surprise given the alarming public health episodes. Uh, Why do you think he's going now and what will his legacy be? Yeah, it's a good question. It's not really a surprise, as you say, given the health episodes, and he is in his later 80s. So in that sense, the idea that he would have run for another term seemed extremely unlikely. The fact that he is stepping down as minority leader already in November, rather than doing that until the end of his term in 2027. That may have been a bit of a surprise to some people. I mean, Mitch McConnell is the longest serving party leader in history. He has played an enormous role in the Senate over the last, since he became, well, he's been a senator since 1985 for Kentucky, and he's been speaker since 2006. And what's interesting, I think, about his legacy when you look at today and the sort of Donald Trump world, the Republican Party, back when he became speaker, he was the first sort of instigator of of sort of blocking policy. This was very much something that he started, if you will, I think, in the Senate. Now he's known as this sort of bipartisan senator because he's broken with Donald Trump on certain issues. Mm -hmm. But back then, he famously said that he wanted Barack Obama to be a one-term president. He said this after Barack Obama was elected and that he would use his power, if you will, in the Senate to ensure that things did not get through for Barack Obama, that Democratic priorities would not get through. So he was sort of the first obstructionist. And then when Donald Trump took office, they worked very well together in the first term in 2016. Mitch McConnell is particularly known for really stewarding a number of judicial appointments through that has remade the Supreme Court for conservatives over the last few years. That is That really will be, if you will, his lasting legacy, the amount of judicial nominations and that course, he was able to get blocking through. blocking Merrick Garland as well by Barack Obama. Exactly, which is part of the steering of this, that he blocked Merrick Garland for Barack Obama at the time saying, well, Obama's term is almost up, so we shouldn't nominate somebody. But of course, when it then came, the same question came for Donald Trump in the last year of his term, he shepherded somebody through. So he has very much been an architect using the sort of political machinations of the Senate to get conservative priorities through. Mm. And who is likely to replace him? That is a good question. It'll be an interesting debate now, and particularly given what we've seen in the House of Representatives over the last year or so, you know, the fight over Kevin McCarthy first being Speaker of the House. Um, And then, uh, you know, now getting Mike Johnson after a long fight uh, in the House of Representatives, I think what's going to be particularly interesting is just to see whether there is any kind of consensus in the Senate. You do have those similar wings in the Senate, and Mitch McConnell has tried his best to keep the party together over the last few years. Whether, you know, which which wing, if you will, of the party the leadership comes out of after Mitch McConnell is a very open question. Um, What would this mean for a possible second Trump term? It kind of goes down to that leadership question, if you will. It's a question of whether he is going to be able to get his nominee through. They obviously have some time to decide that. And basically, given that Mitch McConnell has basically said he'll serve out this term, it might depend a little bit on the election itself, right? If Donald Trump is elected, he is likely to get his chosen speaker for the Senate. If he is not elected, perhaps the Republicans would go in a different direction. And at key moments, Mitch McConnell stepped in to defend the Constitution, thinking particularly after January the 6th, the events of that, didn't he? I mean, Donald Trump will be wanting someone who simply serves him, won't he? 
No, absolutely. That's why it is absolutely critical to look at who would potentially be the next leader, depending on what happens with the election. Mitch McConnell played, I would say, two key roles, if you will, where he broke with Donald Trump. One was simply on January 6th, or also the inauguration of Donald Trump, where he he called his vote to certify Joe Biden the most important vote in history, in his in his history, if you will. So this was something he took a very clear stand on at a time where it might not have been entirely clear that the Senate and the House would actually vote to certify Joe Biden after the insurrection of January 6th. And then now he's been playing an absolutely key role trying to get funding for Ukraine through. This is also separate from what we started this discussion about with the government shutdown. There is still an effort to get funding for Ukraine through the Senate, through the House. He has been, Mitch McConnell has been sort of the strongest speaker in favor of funding for Ukraine. Um, he managed to sort of get something through the Senate, but this is this is the question, if you will. This is where his own power has waned and is perhaps also a reason why he's decided to step down now. He's seen that he doesn't have the same influence that he did before, and Ukraine funding is a key example of that. He cannot get his way anymore with Donald Trump, particularly if he were going to get a second term. Chris Chermak, thank you. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle Radio. You're back with the briefing on Monocle Radio. Now, many countries have seen their relations with Ukraine change since Russia's full-scale invasion two years ago, but few can claim to have had as dramatic a shift as Britain. Hailed by Ukraine as one of the country's leading allies in the West, an exhibition opened last week in the British Parliament, putting the two nations' growing solidarity on full display. Monocle's Julia Lassica reports. The two-year anniversary of Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine was marked in many ways. In cities across the world, Ukrainian flags were unfurled and protesters marched through the streets in solidarity. In Ukraine's capital, Kyiv, President Zelensky welcomed foreign leaders to lay wreaths in remembrance of the fallen. And in Britain's parliament, the UK Friends of Ukraine opened the doors to an interactive exhibition commemorating the country's sacrifice. The organization's co-director, Alex Rennie, told Monocle more about the organization and the exhibition. We founded it just over a year ago now, and that was because we work in in and around Parliament and we saw the need for an organization that's really carry on that political support for Ukraine because after a year, there was so much outpouring of support during that first year, but actually once the first year anniversary came round, it was talking to people actually there's sort of more fatigue that's, that has an element of fatigue that happens towards Ukraine so we're really trying to keep it high in the relevance for members of parliament um, really trying to keep up the uh, momentum in terms of political support so that's exactly what we're trying to do here and um, by trying to have an event for members of parliament peers to come and see and, and experience what it's like in, in Ukraine so you've got VR experience you've got stories from soldiers that have died and also you've got um, the project looking at uh, the Ukrainian art and people and the, the children that have come over here refugees, but also diplomas of students who weren't able to finish their degrees. Building empathy and understanding is at the centre of this exhibition, Rennie says. What we're trying to say is, as a Ukrainian and British people, we're very, you know, there's a lot of similarities between two places, but also getting Ukrainians in front of members of parliament and everything else, understanding the culture, the people, it's very European, you know, it's it's not so dissimilar to us and how we, we think and operate, and they all they want is a, a ability to be part of the West, be part of Europe. 
As well as his involvement with the group, Rennie is also the leader of Haven Borough Council. Imogen Pater, co-director of UK Friends for Ukraine and councillor at Haven Council, explains that the exhibition is just part of the group's efforts. Parliamentary visits and twinned communities are also strengthening links between Brits and Ukrainians. We started a year ago as an organisation and started by leading a parliamentary delegation to Ukraine. And we're about to embark on our third trip with parliamentarians. So we'll have about 18 elected officials from the UK joining us. We are in initial discussions. It hasn't been solidified yet. But the discussions are being had just between Leeds and Kharkiv and how they officiate it during a time of war. So part of our convoy has been directly collected from Leeds. We had the Lord Mayor of Leeds and the MP for Lord Leeds Northwest, Alex Sobel, come out in September to visit Kharkiv. And so this aid will be going directly to them. Um, similar that we've got a whole lot of aid from Kent going to Chernihiv and we've got local aid where I'm a, a councillor going to different places around Lviv and Yavoriv where we're actually twinned with as a council. And I, th- I think the effect on UK communities is it brings it home. You know the school you're supporting. You know the families that are receiving your clothes. You can track exactly where it's going. I know we had generous outpourings at the beginning of the war, particularly in financial donations, which are still just as vital now as ever, but to particularly be able to see tangible objects and the difference they're making to those local communities, I think really gets people involved again. And then from a Ukrainian side, to just know that there are people thinking of them, to know which groups that they can send thank you messages to, it it really sort of strengthens those ties and I think long-lasting ties that will far exceed the war. Alex Sobel, MP for Leeds Northwest and co-chair of the British Parliament's all-party Ukraine group, sponsored the exhibition. For him, it is also a sign of the strong ties between Ukraine and Britain. This is an enduring and everlasting relationship now between UK and Ukraine, much stronger than it was prior to February the 24th, 2022. And so the cultural exchange, cultural games is really important. And let's not forget there are still 140,000 Ukrainians, recently displaced Ukrainians, living in the UK. So our culture is being enriched and imbued by Ukrainian culture, like many previous people, whether they came because they're economic migrants or through conflict or whatever, to the UK. And in return, we need to be showing our own cultural exchange into Ukraine, and that is also happening. Sobel puts much of this down to Britain's response at the beginning of the full-scale invasion. We've got that understanding, and I think when we saw the scale of the invasion, we stepped up, so did others, but we stepped up, and I think that the Ukrainians respond to that because we weren't an immediate neighbour. I think they, they themselves say after the immediate neighbours, the Baltic countries, Poland, etc., it was the UK. So we should be proud that we did that. Rennie agrees and points to the supply of weaponry as a vital part of Britain's ties with Ukraine. The rest of Europe has been picking up their support, which is really great. And I think as a Europe as a continent, we are really stepping into a into a bit a little bit of a, a vacuum left by America and its, its lack of leadership on the international stage, particularly as we know from the Republican Party in America, which has really changed its outlook into how it delivers international leadership. So actually what we're doing at the moment is we as Britain have a special relationship where 
looked at as the, as the leader we're the, we're the people that move first and, and others follow we were the ones that have delivered challenge tanks that allowed others to, to also deliver tanks um, again it was our in-laws the, the, the Martlet the Starstreak all of these he- heavy weaponry going to Ukraine others are now followed and it's become a lot easier for other European countries to donate similar weaponry That was Julia Lassica. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle Radio. Well, that sound could mean only one thing. It's time for our senior correspondent, Fernando Augusto Pacheco, to join us once again for the weekly Global Countdown. Fernando, where are we off to this week? It's a very exciting one, I have to say, Vinny. We're heading to Nigeria. They are the largest music market in Africa, and they're becoming hugely influential. I mean, their music is certainly not just in Nigeria. They, they are spreading to Europe, you know, to the Americas, and, and of course, to other countries in Africa as well. Mm, okay, well, let's have our first track. Who is it? The first track, actually, when, when I first saw the name of the artist, I thought it was Sexy Vibes. But it's not <laughs> Sexy Vibes, but I think it's kind of a play on words. It's Shay Vibes, uh, so very similar the way you write it. The song's called Different Patterns. Let's have a listen. Different patterns. Come up before I cast. Before I cast. Who on the gas? I get paper. I like it. And, and it's high production. If you look at the video, Fast Cars, I think it was set in a desert. I'm not mm-hmm. sure, actually, if Nigeria have desert, so I'm not sure where he's filming. But talking about deserts, uh, Shay Vibes, he's performing in Dubai tonight. So if you are a listener in Dubai and you're interested for a nice night out, maybe they'll still have tickets available. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just speaks to how globally minded uh, Nigerian music is. Yeah. Okay. And number four. Number four. One thing to tell you, one of his tracks is in the playlist, actually, in Monaco. Uh, not the song we're going to hear now, but his song, Two Thirty. It's in the playlist. I love it. I think it's very smooth. But the track we're going to hear now is from another big Nigerian artist. His name is Asake. The song's called Only Me. Only me. Go and do what it feels. Only me. I don't pay my dues. Only me. Now I don't want you to love you. Only me. Only me. Only me. Only me. Only me. And... Uh, Vinny, I have to say, he's been nominated for Best International Artist at the upcoming Brit Awards. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he's definitely a big name. And Asaki is not his real name. I think he took uh, his name from his mother. So it's kind of a tribute. And I was asking Nioma, our Nigerian colleague, and she was saying that Asaki is kind of one of those unisex names that works okay. uh, either way. But yeah, he's definitely a powerhouse. And it's a great track. It's all about money and independence this track okay uh, and number three i think this one is my favorite i mean it's so her voice is so silky and it's beautiful it's kind of more romantic r&b perhaps she's a big name as well uh, she was born in benin but she's nigerian it's ira star with commas <laughs> I love, I definitely love this track. And she started her career as a model when she was only 16. She's very beautiful, but she also has a beautiful voice as Mm, well. Really nice voice. I love it. Okay, number two. This is kind of an emotional one because it's from a Nigerian artist. He started his career at The Voice of Nigeria, one of those reality shows, as many artists uh, do. Uh, His name is Chike. Uh, But he had a collaboration here with, you know, 
you know, they always collaborated together. It's another Nigerian artist called Mobad who died uh, last year. Uh, but they had, I, I believe, the song because we have some of the vocals from Mobad as well. And there's some influence of, you know, Amapiano, which is the South African rhythm, which is kind of a subgenre of house music. But Amapiano, of course, is spread all over Africa. I think Nigeria, a lot of artists are playing Amapiano. It's a track, it's kind of an optimistic track that you can dance to, but also very emotional because of Mobad's death. Uh, but let's have a listen. It's Chike together with Mobad with Egwu. Yeah, I think that's my favorite one so I've, far. I think that, yeah, you can definitely hear the South African influence, I think, on the piano. I love that. I'm glad we played a little bit longer that one as well, because, and even the lyrics, music needs no permission to enter your spirit. So, a lovely tribute. It's been a big hit uh, mm. in Nigeria uh, as well. Mm. And finally, the top spot. Top spot is two legendary names of Nigerian music. It's Kiz Daniel and Davido, and the song's called Twe Twe, and I'll tell you more or less what does it mean. Let's have a listen. <laughs> It's fairly repetitive. I mean, it's not very. It's not quite twerk twerk, but I think it's a slang twerk twerk for you know just people shaking their booties. You know, okay. it's it's very simple, very optimistic. But yeah, maybe not as good as the number two and number three. Yeah, I think I think number one definitely should be higher up. The first, sorry, lower down the chart. Yeah. And, and yeah, I mean, we all like a little bit of a twerk twerk. <laughs> <laughs> well, we know what Fernando's doing this weekend. Uh, Fernando Augusto Pacheco, thank you very much. And that's all for this edition of The Briefing. It was produced by Chris Chermak. Our researcher was Nioma Ekwe. And our studio manager was Tamsin Howard. The Briefing is back tomorrow at the same time. I'm Vincent McAvinney. Goodbye and thank you for listening. Listener.